You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. was certainly a year for the history books in more ways than one. This fire is a monster, and it caught up with them. The uptick in cases, that is a tipping point for us. But now that it's finally over and done with, what will be its lasting legacy? I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program to try to get some perspective on 2020 by checking in with a few of the Bay Area newsmakers and experts that we've been hearing from on KCBS over the past 12 months. This will be a program in three parts, so up ahead, we'll be talking about the wildfires and what lessons could be learned following a record-breaking fire season. The fire service can't be all things to all people and be at all places. Then we'll reflect on the year of protest and consider where all this activism may be headed next. Ideally, what happens is that we extract as much as we possibly can out of this particular movement moment, right, out of this stop on the movement train. That's all coming up on KCBS In-Depth. But first, we're going to begin with the one story that has shaped every other in 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us to share some insights, as he has several times over the last year, is Dr. John Swartzberg, Emeritus Professor of Public Health at UC Berkeley's Division of Infectious Disease. I spoke with him earlier about what lessons he sees in this slow-motion public health tragedy. Dr. John Swartzberg, welcome back to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you. Good to be with you. So I imagine this must be a dizzying time for folks in your line of work. Uh, This is the largest public health crisis that we've faced in more than a century now. So really haven't seen anything like it before. Um, But we are likely to see some kind of health crisis, unfortunately, again, uh, within our own lifetimes. So wondering what lessons there are to learn from the past 12 months. I'm sure that you've all been following this very closely. An awful lot. Certainly... The first thing to take away is let's not forget history. And you mentioned the 1918-1919 pandemic, which was far worse than this one. Um, But we got complacent after that. And we can't be complacent. We have to recognize that the nature of life on this planet is that with human beings, there are going to be pandemics like this. We've already, this is the fourth one in the 21st century. So it's going to continue. And we can't be complacent and we can't forget history. The second thing that's tied to that is that we have to be better prepared. The public health in the United States has been underfunded for decades. And this pandemic with COVID-19 came at a time when we were really at our low, lowest ebb in terms of the resources we had to fight it. And so one of the big lessons is that we have to be prepared going into the future. And we have to fund public health. You know, the problem with prevention is that when you prevent something, nobody, nothing happened. And so nobody appreciates how valuable prevention is. 
until you have something that you can't prevent like COVID-19. So for the next pandemic, we have to be much, much better prepared and we have to fund public health in a much more robust way. And we're seeing the consequences of those missteps uh, play out in terms of the uh, very different outcomes that we're seeing uh, all around the world in different cities, in different regions, in uh, different countries. It's uh, really making for some very different outcomes, no? From a national level, the United States has about 4% of the world's population. Yet we have close to 20% of the world's deaths and about 20, a little over 20% of the world's cases. So the United States has completely failed in the management of this pandemic. But if you wanna drill down and you wanna look at just at California, right now, we're really two different states. Northern California is suffering, but we're not suffering nearly to the degree as our Southern neighbors and in the, in the, in the, in the Valley, um, where they're having a, just a terrible time with this pandemic. Um, we're, we're again, not in a great position, but we're immeasurably better. Why is that? And there's no one answer. And I don't think we understand all of the elements that go into the answer, but clearly one of them, um, this represents the fruit in the Bay Area of the AIDS pandemic in an ironic way. Because with AIDS, initially, um, public health and the, and the uh, San Francisco and Bay Area population didn't work real well together, but they learned, both communities learned. And beginning by the mid 80s, a little bit right around 85, 86, public health and the community were working hand in glove together to handle AIDS. It was really a poster child for how public health and the community needs to work together. And today, We've seen the fruits of that in terms of how well public health has worked with the public to get the public to do the things necessary to keep the numbers down. And the elected officials have worked well with public health to make sure that happens. So I think you can see how some real positive things can occur when you have people working together in concert. Um, and you can see how things just completely fail when you have the opposite of that. So what then is uh, the broader lesson? Is this something that other cities could uh, emulate or, or is it really just a matter of you need to go through that really difficult experience before that uh, trust can be built up? I think it's multifactorial. It clearly, clearly a lot of the responsibility lies with our elected officials. Clearly the responsibility also lies with the public health officials. But the biggest bulk of the responsibility lies with the population. If you have a population that recognizes that it's important, that the individual is important and you have to take care of the individual, but at the same time, the population recognizes that for the individual to be healthy, our society has to be healthy and we have to look out for our neighbors, our community. And it's that kind of thinking that leads you out of these pandemics without so many deaths and so much disruption of life. But when you have a society that primarily is focused on, it's about me and not about anybody else, no matter how good your elected officials are and your public health professionals are, population is not gonna do well. The circumstances of a pandemic necessitate a society to be looking out for each other. Without a pandemic, when things are going well, then people can afford not to do that. 
and, and pass it off to the government's responsibility or somebody else's responsibility. But with the pandemic, it really, what it does is it opens up old wounds and it shows that a society for it to be strong has to be working together. So one of the lessons that we have to learn as a people here in the United States is that yes, we have to think about ourselves as individuals and cherish the rights of being an individual, but we have to recognize that we have no ability to enjoy our lives as individuals unless we take care of our society. That is, we take care of our fellow person, that we, we are communal animals and that we will survive or we will sink on that basis. We have to recognize our, com our commonality with everybody else and care about others as much as we do about ourselves. Well, that is a very big lesson. How optimistic are you that uh, it's going to sink in? I'm really hopeful. And I'm really hopeful. Let me tell you one example as to why. I, I teach public health students and medical students. And I was talking to actually earlier today with one of my public health students. And, and she's in her um, early 20s. And we were talking about attitudes. And she was talking about the fact that she and all of her colleagues are very optimistic about the future. And for someone to say that at the darkest days of our pandemic is really tells you a lot about the attitudes of the next generation coming up. And that generation gives me tremendous hope going forward. I think we're going to learn a lot of the, these experiences. This, this pandemic is going to be indelible in everybody who's lived through it. And it's gonna be hard to forget it for a, a long time. We have to sustain that. So I think in the long term, we certainly have the capability of doing that. And I think we will, given the generations that are coming up. Dr. John Swartzberg, Emeritus Professor of Public Health with UC Berkeley. You are listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're taking a look back at 2020 to consider its lessons and its legacy. So far, we've been talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, but this past year, California was struck by a more familiar calamity as well. Fast-spreading, out-of-control wildfires. Some of the worst of them were sparked by a freak lightning storm that erupted in August. It was like the worst of all worlds where everything is completely dried to the bone. It was completely hot. And then you have lightning all up and down the state. Professor Chris Dykus, a wildfire expert with Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, who is going to be our guest for this segment. It was just a horrific conditions uh, that the first responders, when they uh, simply had to be overwhelmed arriving on the site because there was just so much burning simultaneously. When all was said and done... More than 4 million acres burned up all across California, making 2020 by far the most extensive fire season on record. The fires were so large, in fact, a whole new class had to be introduced. Many fires were coming together and forming sort of complexes. We actually had the very first known uh, giga fire in which uh, we had uh, fires came together and burned over a million acres in Northern California. So uh, uh, just extraordinary times. Uh, the, the landscape is set up for it. And we don't normally have these extensive lightning busts that go all across the state, but we certainly saw them in 2008. We saw them in 2000. So when you have a landscape that is primed to burn uh, with 
high, high intensity and, and severity. All it takes is uh, uh, an ignition. And we just had thousands and thousands of ignitions happen simultaneously this year. Yeah, it's uh, just hard to wrap your head around the, the sheer acreage of how much of California just burnt up. And uh, that's cause for concern in terms of the impact that it it could have on some wildland areas, uh, the ecology. What do we know so far about the long-term impact that all this flame could have on uh, California's ecology? Well, I certainly think that uh, some of the ecosystems like we see with the, uh, uh, the mixed conifers uh, that you might find in the Sierras or Northern California, uh, it's just not uh, used to having these large, high intensity fires for large areas. So this very possible, you know, it's going to recover. I mean, nature is very good at it, but I think that it might be a very long time for some of these areas uh, that were burned with high severity where everything was burnt up, uh, that it's going to take them a while to get back to a forested condition. But the entire area, I'd have to admit, it wasn't a complete, you know, like a nuclear bomb goes off. There were large areas that it it burned in such a way that uh, it might have actually cleared out the forest uh, and kind of uh, made it more minimal. So it wasn't such a, a destructive fire when it came through these, these ecosystems. And so that actually kind of gives us hope going forward that uh, not only we have like us, we can kind of reset the clock uh, in terms of being able to better manage our forests, uh, but in certain areas, we it shows that uh, good forest management actually it works. It's like when you had these massive raging forest fires enter these areas, they just kind of basically hit the ground. They didn't stop; they kept burning, but they low uh, they burned with a much lower intensity. Oh, so that's interesting. So these uh, fuel management techniques that we've been hearing about uh, a lot more recently, uh, the, the the fuel clearing or uh, the prescribed burns, uh, you're saying that uh, that's been done and in the areas that it has been done, uh, there's signs that it's been paying off. So yeah, that is encouraging. Uh, given everything that we've uh, talked about so far, uh, we are looking for the lessons of 2020 in this program. Uh, what would you point to as uh, what you're taking away from the fire season of 2020 and uh, that you'd hope other others would take away as well? Well, I would say one of the big lessons that uh, is just confirming year after year, especially in the most recent years, is that the fire service can't be all things to all people and be at all places. Uh, the men and women that make up, uh, you know, both local uh, Cal Fire and Forest Service firefighters, they're phenomenal. I mean, they're really, really good at what they do. Uh, unfortunately, so many fires were burning is simply overwhelmed them. And we simply just cannot rely exclusively on the fire service to come and protect us once these fires come out. So we have to take a proactive approach to be able to shape that battlefield for these warriors that are out there trying to protect us. And so this is both for the natural environment and also for the built environment. And the way we can set up and shape that battlefield to make it more effective for our firefighters, it, it varies from place to place. And one of the things that we see is that you can't just take a broad brush, one size fits all. There's a lots and lots and lots of tools in the toolbox. And we have to be able as land managers um, and developers and other things, be able to implement all these tools. Because if we just rely on one way, it's going to, it's doomed to fail because California is an extensive state with all sorts of ecosystems and different demographics and, and different cultures. And um, we have to look at what is the problem in a specific place, and then let's go and address that specific problem. And do you have that feeling that uh, your sense of urgency is uh, catching on more broadly? Uh, because, you know, this, the set of issues that you're talking about there, we've been uh, hearing about them for years, not necessarily uh, taking the level of action that you would like to see. Um, but uh, on, on the other hand, you know, I suppose this is the year that the wildfire smoke 
really it lasted for weeks and weeks. It blanketed so much of the state and then brought this crisis home to perhaps uh, more people than ever. So uh, do you have the sense that that sense of urgency is is uh, spreading more widely? Well, I see it happening both in the fire service that there's a recognition that they can't be all things. I see that uh, in the, the, the political arena that uh, many, many uh, bills have went forward in the last couple of years to try to be able to pr- uh, protect both the natural and the, uh, the built environment. So there is a, a shift and uh, we're seeing a change, uh, but uh, we all saw it, you know, with where you might be a hundred uh, miles from the nearest fire and we're impacted deeply as that smoke is coming over. And it was just a horrific conditions where people were already isolated in their homes and then they're further isolated with the smoke. It just made for terrible, terrible conditions in 2020. And uh, we know that we can do better, but it's, it's going to take a lot of work. And frankly, it's going to take a lot of money to kind of get uh, uh, our ecosystems in such a way that uh, uh, will burn, that it won't be these destructive, massive wildfires that are impacting people all across the state and frankly, all across the Western U.S., well, in closing, uh, just reflecting on, again, the, the, the massive scale of these wildfires that we've seen over this past year, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine that they would grow even bigger in the years to come. But that is the trend line that we have been on. Uh, 2017, thought it couldn't get any, any worse than we had uh, 2018, 2019, now 2020. Each one of those years with its own fresh, new kind of uh, surprise, uh, surprising wildfire disaster, um is uh, should we be expecting more of the same in 2021? Well, everyone, frankly, needs to be hoping for rain and snow and lots of it because uh, we are so far deficit. Uh, I saw that uh, it was over 70% of the state right now is in uh, some of the highest degrees of drought and we're, we're there at now. So we need this because um, it's much more difficult uh, for these plants to burn under wetter conditions. So the drier it is, the hotter it is, the more difficult it is going to be able to manage these uh, just uh, terrible situations like we saw in 2020. So if I hear one more person talk about how much they enjoy the 80 degree weather in the, in December, I, I think I'm going to scream uh, because it's like we need rain we need snow we we don't need these beautiful 85 degree days you know where it's just uh you know the iconic uh, uh california we need rain and snow and that's what's going to help us uh, uh going into this next year professor chris dykus with cal poly san luis obispo This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. On the program today, we're getting some perspective on a deeply challenging year from some of the people who understand those challenges best. So far, we've talked about the pandemic. We've talked about the wildfires. Finally, a look at the months of protest and activism that have followed since the killing of George Floyd in May. Over that time, advocates for police reform have won a number of victories in the Bay Area, but have also met with growing pushback as well. To consider what may come next, we're going to speak now with Kat Brooks, a co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project in Oakland. Brooks, an activist, organizer, and former mayoral candidate in Oakland, has been making the case to shrink the police department's budget for years now, long before defund the police became a national rallying cry last year. We spoke recently about what that year of activism has changed and what it hasn't. Kat Brooks, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So... You know better than anybody that uh, these calls to defund the police, they go back well before 
2020, the, the, the movements they've been building for a long time. Why do you think that it was this year uh, with the killing of George Floyd that uh, obviously lit the spark? Why was it this particular moment that uh, this movement caught fire and uh, gained mainstream attention in the way that it did? I mean, I think what what a lot of people aren't seeing, unless you're in the weeds, admired in the work like me or, you know, hundreds of other organizers uh, around the country, is that we've been doing the work, right? We've been pushing these ideas. We've been talking to our communities about this in Oakland, where I'm based. Um, we launched the defund OPD campaign six years ago, and then it popular, popularized it. Um, with my 2018 mayoral run. And so those words were not foreign to Oaklanders and certainly not foreign to Oaklanders who've been engaged in pushing for a more just and fair budget, Oaklanders who've been angry, annoyed, agitated for lack of um, better words perhaps um, at how much of our budget the Oakland Police Department sucks up every year without us seeing any real results. Um, people have been actively working to impact the public debate around police, policing and mass incarceration. Um, so, you know, I, I've been saying a lot because you hear people at rallies talk about, you know, this is just the beginning and being very, we need to be very clear. This is not the beginning. This is a, a moment on a very long continuum of resistance. Well, let's talk about one of the things that has come out of that moment uh, in Oakland in particular. Um, the city council over the summer formed a citizen task force that is aiming to find ways to cut 50 percent of the city's police budget and uh, use that money to form non-police responses to emergency situations. So this is definitely a form of uh, defunding the police in action. But uh, a complication is that at this point, it seems that some members on the Citizen Task Force have uh, lost their appetite for for full-scale defunding. Uh, The San Francisco Chronicle reported earlier that responding to a spike in homicides in Oakland, uh, some of those members say that they're now against reducing the number of police officers on the force without also coming up with alternative plans uh, to deal with the violent crime in the city. So uh, would seem to be a little bit of uh, a wrinkle in the plans for defunding. Uh, what do you make of uh, these misgivings? First of all, what that demonstrated to me for when those five people came out with the letter and, and the story that first you know, um, it aired in the Quran was they're not clear. They're lacking clarity on A, what defund means and B, their mission. Because their cry was, we can't cut police um, budgets or cut the numbers of police that we have on our streets unless we have an alternative that's going to keep us safe that we can invest in. Well, that's their job. They actually have the power. That's the power of the task force. This task force has the power to create the plan for what we're gonna put the dollars in, existing programs and or create new ones in order to, to have alternatives. But the, the, the mayor, the administration, um, detractors, obstructionists, whatever you want to call them, or all of the above, they're really sort of honing in on, um, it's about cutting the police budget, it's about cutting the police budget as if then there'll be nothing there, right? And, and that's, that's silly and it's nonsensical. And who would propose something like that? Because whether I'm an abolitionist, I'm still rational enough to know I still live in the real world that we need something, right? That there are forces and elements and things out there Um, that we need a response to. What we're saying is that um, what doesn't need a militarized response, what doesn't need a badge and a gun, um, what doesn't need to suck up um, all of the money we have for social services um, and and community supports um, is law enforcement. And it's not working, right? So 
amidst the 2019 spike in violence, people were saying, we can't defund the police because look at this violence and flip that on its head, right? Keith, the violence is happening while they're funded. <laughs> the violence every year for at least the last decade, Oakland has been listed as one of the top 10 most violent cities in the country while OPD has had half of our budget. So some, we're not getting the, the cost benefit analysis here doesn't make any sense. So given that 2020 was obviously not the end point of this conversation, still uh, a lot more to be worked out, and uh, given that it's not the, the start point either, uh, as, as you've been discussing, what will the legacy of 2020 be? What do, what do you think it's going to be remembered for in, in the long run? If we do it right, and because and I, and I, and I, the, the 2021 matters, right? Like if, if we do 2021 right, the legacy will be not police reform, but the moment that we start to tangibly see, feel, hear, taste, experience, the transformation, not reformation, but the transformation of how this country talks about and implements, designs, thinks about, and funds policy practices and programs for public safety. That should be the legacy. And that should be what every year from here builds on. We should see less and less reliance on, on, on law enforcement for responding to community crisis. We should see more and more investment in alternative models of response to community crisis. Um, we should see less and less people being incarcerated for things like mental health crisis or being homeless. And ideally what happens is that we extract as much as we possibly can out of this particular movement moment, right? Out of this stop on the movement train so that the next time, right, our people are able to even extract more. And, and, and one of the things that gives me hope about that is to actually see the, the savvy and the, the strategy and the tactical precision um, that I saw young people in particular engage in across this country. I, you know, I'm gonna big up Oakland and my daughter and her folks and, and the work that they did, but across this country. That's what we're supposed to do, right? I'm, I'm getting up there. It's, 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 I'm, and I'm tired of being tear gas, quite frankly. Um, it's time for me to go do another piece of work. But my job before I can go, our job before we can go, is to be sure that we've left tangible movement work um, for, for younger people to pick up and push down the road. And that's what I think has been happening. And how hopeful are you that we're uh, going in that direction right now? I'm very hopeful, actually. I'm very, very hopeful. I mean, not all days are great days. <laughs> Sometimes I wake up, I'm like, ah! <laughs> but but I am, the, the, the young people make me hopeful. And there's so many brilliant, I get to talk or engage with or text or tweet with one of the most brilliant people on the planet and, and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And every single day, those brilliant people are waking up and fighting to make sure that this country lives up to be the dream and the democracy that she promised. All right, and has reneged on for people like us for far too long. And, and I believe that we're going through a period of great transformation. And I think that things will get worse before they get better. But I believe in our power to hold on and persevere. I do. Kat Brooks, a co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project in Oakland. This has been KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe in the new year. Be well. We'll see you next week. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.